A quick note for parents who listen to Trek Geeks with their children. The following episode of the podcast contains mature content and themes, including an open and very frank discussion on the topics of suicide and self-harm, which may be unsuitable for younger listeners. Parental discretion is strongly advised. If you or someone you know is struggling emotionally or having a hard time, please know that there are options. If you need someone to talk to, please know that you're not alone. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is there 24 hours a day to help. Please call them at 1-800-273-8255 or chat with them online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Hi, this is Nana Visitor, Major Kira Norris from Deep Space Nine, and you are listening to the biggest little show this side of the Gamma Quadrant, the Trek Geeks Podcast with Bill Smith and Dan Davidson. show this side of the Alpha Quadrant, your independent Star Trek podcast. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trek Geeks. We're incredibly happy you're here. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. It really means a lot to us. My name is Bill Smith. I'm your co-host. And joining me this week, as he always does, is, well, you know, if I were going to have a hunt, I would probably make him the prey. Uh, simply just so I could, you know, get him out of this quadrant. Uh, he's the very much on the run Dan Davidson. Dan, look out, buddy. Here they come. I am Dan. Uh, great. What does that mean? I am Dan. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. <laughs> hey, buddy. Hey, man. It's great to be here as always. Episode 114. Uh, looking forward to our discussion tonight. It's going to be a, a, an interesting one and maybe a difficult one on some points, but uh, it's time and uh, I'm glad that I am here to share it with you, man. So am I. You know, this is a, an episode that we talked about doing for a while and the timing seems right, especially in... You know, the, uh, in the development of things that happened at STLV for you, which we'll talk about some later on. But this is an episode that both you and I enjoy a great deal, and it's an early Deep Space Nine episode. It is an early Deep Space Nine. Season one, Captive Pursuit. You know, we've talked about how some of the uh, Star Trek spinoffs kind of took a little bit of time uh, to get going, and Deep Space Nine was no different. They had some uh, some clunkers in season one and two, but uh, Captive Pursuit was definitely not one of those. It is a great episode, um, and it has very special meaning for me. But on top of that, it's a really good episode. So uh, I'm glad we're going to be talking about it tonight. I am too. You know, this is the the fifth episode of the series, and it's really kind of amazing to me in that sense that that they were able to put out such great content so early on. Considering how well the first seasons of most Star Treks are, if you think about it. So it's, a, it's one we're going to enjoy talking about. It's hopefully one that everybody else enjoys. And Dan, how might they route that feedback to us, my friend? 
There's a whole bunch of ways, as always, on Twitter, Facebook, Skype, and Instagram. You can find us at Trek Geeks, and you can also send us an email at podcast at trekgeeks.com. But we like to hear your voice, so why don't you just give us a call at 508-784-1701 and leave us a voicemail. And you can also do the very same thing over at speakpipe.com slash trekgeeks. And we also want you to become uh, a member of our official Facebook group, Camp Kittimer. As I always say every week, there's tons of great discussion going on there, and this week is no exception. You're going to get early access to uh, Trek Geeks podcast, at least for a little while longer, before we take a little break, which we'll get into soon. Um, but uh, to join the group, just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Camp Kittimer, and uh, Heather, Jackie, Dan, or maybe even Bill or myself will let you write in so you can take part in all the fun and frivolity. But as usual, you must remember that any comments or messages you leave in any of these places may be used in a future episode. Back to the newsroom. Wow, we have a newsroom? That was in the budget? uh, Aerie Studio is being used right now for podcasting, so we are building a newsroom. Wow, I can't wait to see the Kickstarter for that. Captive Pursuit. It's an episode, as we mentioned, that both you and I enjoy. I've watched it a couple of times in the last week, and um, I, I, I don't want to show our cards too early, but I'm going to say this one for me really still holds up even to this day. It holds up for me as well. It's a great great story. And not only is it a great story, it's a great Star Trek story. There's lots of elements in it that really pull into both from uh, from a TOS perspective and even a little bit from a TNG perspective. And being so early in Deep Space Nine's first season run, it really was quite a surprise that this one you know, came together as well as it did and has stood the test of time for as long as it has. Well, and I think this one was different in the sense that it kind of broke a lot of rules in a way. You know, there's a there's oh, yes. a per, there's a perfection to the Federation and Starfleet. You know, people, you know, usually the officers who do things wrong are the bad morals or you know the people mm-hmm. who clearly have a flaw in the episode. And in this one, we kind of get to see O'Brien sort of throw caution to the wind and and disobey orders, something that he's never really done a whole lot. And I think that's one of the things that really fascinates me about this episode. There's a clear delineation that Deep Space Nine is very different. I think uh, that's a perfect way to put it, because when we usually had seen O'Brien in the past, it was a next generation, very, very different series. Over on Deep Space Nine, they did have that darkness and the breaking of the rules, and it was good to see him come out of that element so early in the run. I, I couldn't agree more. Wow, it's like I said that. That's, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. It's also interesting to note that you know everybody from Cole Meaty to Rick Berman cites this as one of their favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine. And I think that says a lot about this story. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But Dan, if I'm not mistaken, you might have one of your Trek geeks trademarked and patented three minute episode recaps uh. for this particular episode. I've heard a rumor. There is a rumor, you know, it may be patented and world famous, but never usually is to that three minutes, is it, Bill? Uh, your words, not mine. <laughs> so, Dan, if you are ready to proceed with your infamous three-minute recap, I'm ready to hit start on the timer. All right. Well, you go ahead and hit start because we're going to get this baby going. Do it. The DS9 crew is excited to welcome its first visitor from the Gamma Quadrant as a ship comes through the wormhole. 
The alien ship is damaged, and the pilot reluctantly agrees to be tractor-beamed in for repairs. O'Brien goes to his ship to greet the newcomer, but the cockpit appears empty. That is until the alien actually decloaks and startles the chief engineer. The alien identifies himself as Tosk, and O'Brien asks if that is his name or his species, but he simply replies, I am Tosk. With repairs on his ship scheduled to take a few days, Miles decides to show his new friend around Deep Space Nine. But Sisko and the others are unsure of what to make of him. Tosk simply wants to leave, and he won't reveal who attacked him or why he's, in, he's being so skittish. Answers soon come, though, when Odo and his security contingent catch Tosk trying to break into the weapons storage unit. After he's detained in a holding cell, more of to- uh, another group of Tosk's people come through the wormhole and beam him onto Deep Space Nine. After a brief firefight with the crew, they locate Tosk and bring shame to him for being captured by the aliens. They reveal themselves to be hunters, and Tosk is their prey. It turns out that Tosk's people are bred specifically to be hunted by this race, and great honor is bestowed on them if they are caught and killed. But if they're captured, then they're disgraced. Miles tries getting Tosk to seek asylum with the Federation, but he'll not yield. His goal in life is, ironically, to die with honor but his hunters have decided he's not worthy of that honor, and he will be returned home alive, the greatest shame a Tosk can endure. Sisko has no choice but to to not get involved in another culture's beliefs. Damn that prime directive! So he advises the hunters that they can take Tosk, but Miles is not having any of it. After a brief stop by Quarks, he decides to help Tosk escape, thereby letting the hunt continue. Tricking the hunting party leader into a powered-up weapons detection field, followed by punching him dead in the face, Miles and Tosk flee into the station's inner ductwork. Odo wants to pursue, but Sisko calmly tells Odo there's no rush. See? There are always ways around the Prime Directive, after all. Nice going, Commander. Miles and Tosk fight their way through DS9's corridors, and after defeating the hunting party and getting Tosk back to his ship, Miles prepares to say goodbye to his friend. Tosk's honor as hunted prey has been restored. Tosk leaves Deep Space Nine to resume his role as the hunted, and as a parting gesture of friendship, Tosk says, Die well, O Brian. And the hunt resumes. Is that it? That's it. Well, dude, you came in in under three minutes for the first time ever. You were like 253. Hey, you know what? I try. I have a good teacher. <laughs> Who, who who taught you that? Was that Champion? Well, I'll get that. Son no, of it a... was the it was the female computer voice actually. Oh, okay, yeah, she does a great job. She's great, uh, <laughs> Dan. Great recap. Thank you so much. I um, in watching this episode, I think one of the things that impresses me right off the bat is how very much this is like true Star Trek. You know, early on in Deep Space Nine's run. You know, it's, I didn't expect an episode this layered, this so true to Star Trek's ideals. And I think this is really kind of the episode that sort of won me over as far as Deep Space Nine went, honestly. I have to agree with that 100%, actually. Um, I think it's the one that really pulled me in for a variety of reasons. But you're right, it's very layered. It really pulls a lot of things that we're used to and and really throws them right in our face, right up front. I mean, we get this new alien, prime directive, um, dilemmas on what's right and what's wrong, 
trying to get involved or not get involved with different species beliefs and the way that they do things. And it really, it pulls at the heartstrings too, man. It really, really does, especially at the end. Yes. I think that's very, very apparent. Um, one of the things that I think I, I really enjoy at the end is the Cisco O'Brien interaction where you find a, you kind of first get, you know, one of the early instances of yelling Cisco as I like to call him. And he really does dress down O'Brien like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> you know, that's something Picard I don't think ever would have done unless, unless it was Wesley getting somebody killed. But, um, wow. and then O'Brien goes, hey, but I, I shouldn't really have made it that far, Commander. Do you know anything about that? <laughs> and I think that's the part of the scene I really appreciate. Um, yeah, there are the feels all over the place with this episode. O'Brien makes a hard choice. But um, the interaction between him and Cisco, I think, sets a, a good note for that relationship. I think this was one of the first times that I really started to dig the way that Avery Brooks uh, portrayed Cisco, especially when he was raising his voice or, or giving one of his famous speeches, and he would enunciate the way that he did. I, I just think that this was a, a great first example of that, and it carried on for so long. It's just one of the great things that Avery does as Captain or Commando Cisco on this point. So give me a few things that uh, that really stick out about you as far as this episode goes. For like three standouts comp- about the entire episode, I would say um, No, no, I mean no, I mean just things in general because we're going to talk about our three favorite things at the end. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So well, I I just think I I I like the idea that we're finally getting someone from the Gamma Quadrant coming to the station. Uh, a lot of people um, before the show started, and especially after it started, before it got into the seasons with the Defiant, would always complain about the fact that they're not going anywhere. I mean, there's nothing to do. It's a space station. Oh, we're going to sit around here all week, and we're going to have another episode that we're going to spend a lot of time at Quarks, this, that, and the other thing. I like the idea of somebody coming through the wormhole for the first time, and we get to see what people, quote-unquote people, are like on the other side of the wormhole in the Gamma Quadrant. I thought that was a very cool point. You know, I think one of my initial worries of Deep Space Nine is what, the, the station's not going to go anywhere. Mm. Um, so they're just going to boldly sit. <laughs> I like that. That could be a tattoo, I Thank think, you. on an arm somewhere. Yeah, not my arm. No. That's for darn no, sure. No. Yeah, and, and I think that this is one of the ones that helped me realize that, you know, this this could take on kind of a gun smoke feel of sorts, you know, where everybody came to the town. Mm-hmm. And in this case people come to the station and there can still be sort of an alien of the week type dilemma, except they would visit us necessarily. And I thought that that's, that was another thing or, or another realization I came to in watching this particular episode. Um, what else you got for me? Yeah. I, um, I loved as, as small as this is and the episodes didn't really have anything to do with the episode per se, but the transport, the transporter effect with the hunters was Really very cool. It's one of my favorite parts about the episode. You don't see it any other time in Star Trek anywhere. And I thought it was just, it was was pretty neat. I remember seeing that in the preview from the week before and thinking, wow, that looks really cool. That's different. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, because usually it's these sort of slow materializations or dematerializations. And in this case, it almost looked like a, a, a tube. Yeah. 
that just sort of drops these guys off. It was really kind of cool. It was very cool. I did some reading recently, and unfortunately, uh, I don't have it in front of me, so I'll be paraphrasing. But that effect was actually kind of an homage to the movie Metamorphosis, or Metro- excuse me, Metropolis. Um, something about that movie, there was something very similar that took place. So I'm glad that they pulled in another science fiction uh, uh, movie or genre into Deep Space Nine. And the other thing I read was that the Hunters were actually supposed to have some kind of a helmet on, and originally were going to be very insectoid looking, um, but they had to cut that back because of budget constraints. Uh, I kind of like the way the Hunters looked in the finished version, and and if you had to get rid of something, I'm glad they got rid of that and not the Tosk makeup. Oh, I agree, because that Tosk makeup is just so incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, everything from the headpiece all the way down to the chest, you can see how it looks like this sort of amphibious set of scales. And it it was one of the first things that struck me about seeing this episode was just how fantastic Michael Westmore's makeup was. As usual. Right. As usual. Um, I hear that he based it on alligator skin after seeing a photo in National Geographic, which makes it even more impressive, quite honestly. Yeah, it, it's 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 really cool how, as I've grown up over the years, you hear these stories of how things come to fruition. I'm going to go off on a small tangent, but one of the things I've always remembered is when they were creating Star Wars, the sound of the laser pistol was actually a hammer being hit on a telephone wire. And this idea that Tosk was created by a simple picture of an alligator in National Geographic made me think of that right away, how the simplest things can create this amazing science fiction world or worlds that we've seen as we've grown up. And actually, I want to correct myself. It was actually Smithsonian Magazine and not Nat Geo. So for the record, I do realize my mistake. (laughs) Actually, you know what? I have read also that it was National Geographic. So uh, that's interesting that uh, there's a couple places that might have incorrect info. That's very true. Um, Something else that really kind of blows me away in this episode are the guest stars. And I'm going to start with Garrett Graham, who turns up later as the Q who wants to end his own life in Voyager. But in this case, he's the hunter. And he does such an incredible job in that role. I didn't even realize it was the same guy until I looked it up on IMDb. Um, You know when I found that out? Just now? 15 seconds ago when you said it, <laughs> looking at the picture of the hunter and the picture of Q, no idea. I had no clue that that was him. That's amazing. Me wow. either. And, you know, further testament to the makeup, but what a great performance, you know, Graham turns in, in this episode. He just creates something that totally stands apart from anything else he's done. And I, I love it, truly. Yeah, I really do too. It's It's a shame. The one thing that I think is a shame of this episode. Not too, too much, but it would have been great. We've talked about this in, in past uh, discussions that we've had. I really wish we get to see both of these races again during DS9's run. It really would have been kind of a nice bookend uh, if we had seen them for some reason, maybe not Tosk himself uh, or the specific hunters, but just to see like as they're in the Gamma Quadrant, you know, they see something about uh, uh, the hunt going on. That would have been kind of cool. Uh, yes, I agree with you. I would definitely like to know more. You know, I know that um, you know Robert Hewitt Wolf, who worked on Deep Space Nine for a number of years, essentially has said that you know these uh, the, the people who bred the Tosk are as a gift to the hunters were also the same people who bred the Gem Hadar. 
So that was the sort of calculus behind it, which becomes even more interesting. That is very, very interesting. I like that idea very much. I approve of yeah. that. Oh, oh, good. <laughs> I, wow. Uh, let me let me get a note off to, to Rob Wolf. God, that's you. fantastic. I'll talk to Thank him later. You, Don't worry about it. Thank you so much. <laughs> also, um, Scott McDonald is wonderful as Tosk. I mean, he's he's appeared in Trek a lot. You know, uh, people will remember him from Next Gen. I think it was Face of the Enemy where he played one of the Romulans. But he is fantastic as Tosk. And I, I just can't say enough good things about him in this episode. He may be one of my favorite alien races slash characters in the entire DS9 run. Um, I'm sure if we talk to uh, Mr. Morehouse over at Trek Ranks and we have a, you know, one-off alien species uh, episode, Tosk may be right up there, I'm, I'm kind of guessing. He's brilliant. And, and I think the reason he's so brilliant is because of the... Um, in my opinion, Emmy award-winning performance that Scott McDonald turned in. Oh, it was lights out. It truly was, you know, and, and right with him there is Cole Meany, quite frankly, because, you know, Meany gets to do some stuff he's never done in Star Trek before. He was, he's a great actor before Star Trek, but this really allowed people to see what he was capable of. And I think it, it says so much about those two being paired in these scenes. Yeah, uh, I'll definitely be talking about Colm later on in the show and some special thoughts that I have in regards to this performance in this episode. Well, very good. So, Dan, did you know that this is the first episode in which we learn that Odo never carries a weapon? I did know that. And I like how they um, kept that for the entire run of the series, except for one small time. And I'm wondering if you know what that one is. I do. I want to say it's Heart of Stone. Yes, sir. Okay. Ooh, dodged a bullet nice, that time. Nicely done. But that's like season three, I think. I believe so, yeah. Uh, um, You know, I think it might be season four. Uh, I'll have to double check. Oh, you get right on that, okay. <laughs> um, which is also a great episode, but um, it also marks the first time we see the holding cells in Odo's security office. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of firsts in this episode. Of course, it's only the fifth season in, but uh, but still, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I think it's like it's that. really great. I um, it, Also, we mentioned Scott McDonald and Garrett Graham earlier. This is actually the, the, the... This is actually, I think, the first time Garrett Graham is actually in Star Trek. It's not the first time for Scott McDonald, I don't think, but... Uh, right. Um, and uh, as, as usual, Bill, I'll jump right in and say, you are correct, sir. You know, I, I'm going to have to sense another Geek the Stump coming up pretty soon because you're killing it right now. It is season three. It's actually episode 14 of season three that Heart of Stone was was in, and that's a great episode. We're going to have to do a whole episode of, of Trek Geeks on that one at some point. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I That was actually a lucky guess, season three. I, I wasn't 100% sure, but uh, I will take the win, and we're not doing Geek the Stump anytime soon. Forget that. Oh, oh Okay. <laughs> and Dan, I know you'll be very happy that uh, Ciroc Lofton does not appear in this episode. I don't mind Jake too much. <laughs> Good old Ciroc with his couch upholstery. He spends too much time with Andy Robinson in the wardrobe department, I think, sometimes. Oh, no doubt, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how, you know, we get to see a little bit of um, imperfection 
in a Starfleet officer that's that we know. I mean, certainly we've seen other Starfleet officers defy orders, you know, whether it was Riker or Data or you know Kirk, certainly whomever. But this is really the first time where O'Brien sort of of does it and is okay with it mm-hmm. because O'Brien's a, a O'Brien's a Starfleet guy. You know, he's a lifer. Yeah, he was a non commissioned officer. He works his butt off, and this is really the first time he sort of throws caution to the wind and and says, you know damn the torpedoes, you know, full speed ahead. I'm, I'm doing this and I don't care what the repercussions are. It's one of the reasons why I think Deep Space Nine is my favorite series is it's Star Trek, but it's Star Trek on its head at times. Um, you don't expect things to happen. And that's what made the show so memorable for me. We see it later on. I'm going to go off on a tangent again with a spoiler alert. Cisco pretty much destroys an entire planet with by irradiating it while he's trying to track down somebody who he's pissed off at. So we see things that we would never be ready to see in other incarnations of Trek before Deep Space Nine. That's a really great point. Mm. You know, it's um, there definitely is a, a darker tone. You know, that scene with O'Brien and Quark, you know, where O'Brien really comes to the realization of, hey, wait a second, I, I, I could break the rules. Right. That's something he just never really had considered before, if you think about it. And when that moment comes over him, he's like, oh, yeah. change the rules. <laughs> and it, it, I think it's really a, a key moment in O'Brien's development, especially in that first season. I think it's a key development in Quark. It's a key point in Quark's development as well. Um, a lot of times, you know, we've talked about how the Ferengi were kind of the laughing stock of, of Star Trek during TNG's run. And Armin Shimmerman was able to really take a, a, an alien race that wasn't originally written that great and really build on it and make it a, uh, a recognized, uh, character species, and this is a great example of what that species, what the Ferengi are all about. And I thought he did it brilliantly, and especially in that scene. Yes, he absolutely did. You know, we learn a little bit about Odo too, um, and his steadfastness. We, we've seen it somewhat over the first four episodes previous to this, because there were a couple of Odo heavy, you know, features, especially if you think about like a man alone. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, in this one, you know, we get to see that, you know, Odo gets a little persnickety, especially when people think they're using or when he thinks people are usurping his duties. And at that end where, you know, O'Brien pulls the double cross and and Odo leaves to go storm up to ops and talk to Cisco. It's like you see a piece of Odo's character that essentially is going to stay with Odo the entire run also, I think. Yes, his um, his entire uh, belief in justice uh, is really one of his strong points. And he, he's not too all happy when somebody uh, says he might not be doing his job. I liked it. <laughs> I like. <laughs> I didn't realize you were going to do the Odo grunt. That's awesome. <laughs> any, uh, any other thoughts before we move on into uh, a slightly different topic on uh, Captive Pursuit? You know, I think we've hit on a lot of the points. It's um, it's a brilliant episode, and and I'm going to steal a little bit from Mission Log, and I said something a little while ago about it. It stands the test of time so well. Um, it's been almost 25 years since that episode came out. It's just as good today as it was the first time I saw it, and that really is um, is a thumbs up to the writing staff and, of course, the actors who brought this story to life in such a magnificent way. You know, I have to say, you know, as a, as a parting thought before we move on to the next segment, the, the opening teaser 
is really kind of great because it addresses it something great. you never would have seen addressed in Star Trek. Yeah, don't talk about it now because that's one of my three standout things, man. <laughs> okay, well, we'll we'll come back for that, and uh, with that, we'll move on to segment two. Before we go any further, I'd like to reiterate again that this part of the podcast is going to contain a very open and frank discussion on the topics of suicide and self-harm, and we do think it may be unsuitable for younger listeners. So parents, if you're listening to the podcast with kids in the car at this point or wherever, you may want to pause it for now and come back to it later. Um, Dan, this is a topic that I wasn't sure you were going to want to talk about for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And it's a topic that's very personal to you. Um, we've mentioned on the podcast before how Star Trek literally saved your life, and it happened to be this particular episode, Captive Pursuit. Um, this past summer at STLV, you got the opportunity to sort of, you know, close uh, a chapter of that book out when you got to meet some of the DS9 cast. Yeah, I will say uh, before we get started uh, with the story is is not only was I able to close a chapter of that book, um, I was ap- actually able to finally close the book, Bill, after 17, 18 years. Um, wow. that, final, that final thing that I needed to do, I was able to do. I actually was able to do it with Terry Farrell, and we'll get into that later on. But it was that final thing that I needed to be able to finally put all the demons to rest after so many years. Um, uh, and, and I can smile at what happened uh, at STLV just a few weeks ago. And it's something I will never, ever forget. We'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in, in just a few minutes. It's, it's something that I'm glad that I could see. Um, but, um, we'll, we'll get back to that. So you mentioned the time frame was about 17 or 18 years ago, obviously a very different time in both of our lives. Um, mm-hmm. you were going through something fairly significant and the details aren't important because that's part of your journey. Um, what right. it means in the end is that it left you in such a, uh, a, a mental state where you thought that your only answer was to take your own life. Is that a fair statement? Yep. It is a fair statement. Um, I guess I'll start um, with uh, the fact that there was an event that took place um, of my own doing. Um, uh, I was brought up to do things a certain way, and I totally threw those beliefs out the window and, and screwed up. And uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, and looking at it now, it probably wasn't as uh, and a huge event as as some people may say, well, that wasn't that bad. Well, it was that bad. It was that bad for me. And that's what counts the most. Um, event took place and the things just kind of fell apart in my life at that point after what had happened. Um, I had, I was in a, a, a different marriage at the time and it was a very controlled marriage. Um, and when things went south, um, I was pretty much 100% alone in trying to deal with my guilt, and uh, I had no way to reach out to anyone to get the help and comfort that I needed to let me know that things would be all right. Um, one of the things that took place, and Bill, I don't think you know that I was going to bring this in, is, is, is you and I were friends for a long time prior to this event happening. Um, I unfortunately 
took advantage of our friendship uh, during the event that took place. And uh, as a result of that, we unfortunately, uh, on good terms, I think, had to part ways for a little while. So that's one of the reasons, uh, or this is the main reason why you and I did not really see each other for upwards of a decade. Uh, and that's something that I blame myself for, and then we've talked about that. Well, but let me interject there for a second, because sure. that's something for which, and I don't mean to make this about me because it's not, but since you brought that point up, that's something for which I've carried around a fair amount of guilt for myself because it wasn't necessarily amicable. I told you I just couldn't deal with you at that time. Yes, but I always I always thought that it was done in a, in a way that I, I totally understood and respected. Um, you could have just as easily told me to go F myself, and I would have not had any ill will toward you for saying that because I deserved it at the time. But you didn't do it. You did it in a way that I respected and, and honored, and, and, uh, and, and that was that for that point. So um, as things progressed and, and things started to go downhill, I, I actually lost my job. Uh, over what happened, and over time, I had to uh, sell my um, the home that I was living in at the time because of civil action and and costs associated with it, and so forth. So I was by myself. Um, I could not reach out to my family because at the time, um, the person that I was with um, wouldn't let me to be to be blunt. Um, so I had to live with my guilt by myself, and on top of everything else. I had to be told how much I ruined her life at the time as well. So it was, it was, I can, I'm sure people can imagine that when you have guilt as it is and you don't have anybody to reach out with that love you and want you to be okay. And then you're getting that constant barrage of, of I've caused so much trouble. Uh, things can seem pretty bleak. Uh, Bill, I'm sure you, I'm sure you can agree to that. I think. I, I I can't imagine how bleak they must have seemed, but I can absolutely see where, you know, that they were probably darker than they've ever been for you, right? Um, because some of this story I've, I've obviously just heard for the first time just now, and others of it I've known for quite some time because you and I have talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to talk about that particular day mm-hmm. um, because I think that that's probably more important on your journey than actually what got you there, right? Um, you obviously had a plan. I did. You obviously had, I mean, I know you, you think things out you know, to the nth degree and you worry about the tiniest details. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing that you did the same thing with this particular act. I did. So could you sort of walk me through that day and how, or what it was you intended or how you intended for everything to unfold? Sure. I, um, I decided that I was going to uh, commit suicide. Um, I saw no other way out to get out of how I was feeling. Um, And I prepared everything. I had a note uh, typed out, uh, printed, sealed in an envelope. Um, I was able to get my hands on a weapon. um, And I had it at the place that I lived at at the time. Um, I was by myself uh, for pretty much that entire day. What I would do um, after I lost my job is I was pretty much um, at that location all the time, draw, uh, blinds drawn, dark, 
uh, and that certainly didn't help the situation. Um, just thinking about things over and over and over again, making things worse. And I'll, I will say this for people that are going through this type of thing, it snowballs and it snowballs at a pace that you can't even imagine. Um, and that was happening with me. And so I got to that point. So I had decided that I was going to do this. Um, I was in the loft of, of the condo and in the loft of the condo, we had a TV with a VCR and I had all of my deep space nine episodes on uh, on VHS, and I would usually just have them on um, in the background uh, for whatever reason, whenever I was doing anything, when I was at home by myself all the time. Um, I had a, I can vividly remember, I had a table in front of me. I had the note there. I had a drink there of some kind. I don't know what. I will say that I had not taken any pills or any uh, any intense amount of alcohol. So um, I had all of my uh, faculties, um, but I still knew this is what I was going to do. I knew that I was crying at the time, and I happened to have uh, one of the tapes uh, of six episodes in the v- uh, VHS machine, and it was playing. And <clears throat> I decided that it was time. I had the uh, gun in my mouth, I had the hammer pulled, and I was just staring off into space, and anybody who's gotten that close, it's it's not easy to do, no matter how much you may or may not want to do it. It's, it's hard to finally do that, because things start flooding through your mind, like your loved ones, and what are they going to think, and this, that, and the other thing. And as I was sitting there staring, I was staring at the TV, and Captive Pursuit was on. And Miles O'Brien was talking to Tosk and talking about how important every life is. And he should, you know, it was when he was talking about coming over to the Federation and we can protect you. And it wasn't a speech about uh, so over the top about, uh, about life, but just the way that Combe brought those lines across and the way that Tosk reacted and the way that the rest of the episode unfolded. I stopped what I was doing. I watched the rest of the episode and I crumpled on the floor for what seemed like hours just bawling and I didn't do it. And it was because of that moment. Um, uh, My wonderful wife now, Susan, always believes that things happen for a reason and she is a very big believer in fate. And that episode... I will believe till my dying day was playing on my television that way that day for a reason. Whether it was divine intervention of some point, some kind that I happened to put that cassette in the player, I don't know. But I can say without a doubt, as serious as anyone can think, that if it was not for that episode being on television that night, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation, my friend, because I would not be alive. Period. I, I think I'm. I don't think I realized that it was that particular scene, because um, I th- I think honestly that's probably one of the scenes that I, I think is the most Star Trek. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. it, there are a lot of Star Trek style things that happen in this episode, but you know when I think about it, if I have to boil it down to one scene, it's that one, yeah. and it's 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 really kind of you know it kind of leaves me at a loss for words to know that that was the moment. I think that part of the reason why it was that moment is just the w- the w- the way that the whole scene is. I can't watch that scene without getting teary eyed now because it because it holds that importance for me. Cole Meany, damn it, man, he is a genius. That 
the way that he brings across his character and his compassion for someone who is a pretty much a complete stranger is what really got to me. Anybody can save anybody else. It doesn't matter who you are. I could be someone who you've never met before, and I can have this effect on you so much that you'd be willing to throw your career out the window to help me because I'm being hunted by this species. That's what I think of. And that's what O'Brien did in this episode. And he, he did it in such a way that it pulled me out of the deepest point that you could ever possibly be. I, I, I guess the best way to describe it is I was as close to being dead as you can possibly be, quote unquote, voluntarily without being dead. It was that close. It could have been milliseconds of of timing between when that scene was and what I was about to do. It was that close. And for whatever reason, it happened when it did. And here we are. So, <clears throat> pardon me, I, I know your parents, albeit not well, but I've met them on several occasions with you. And... To be honest, they're, they are genuine and wonderful people. Thank um, you. I have nothing but the highest respect for your folks. Obviously, your family did not know about this for some time, and I'm guessing they all know it now because you're talking about it on a podcast. Right. But at what point did you tell them about this particular day? Um. You know, I I don't know if I have a specific answer for that. Um, I know it was not too long ago, to be honest with you. Um, I think since we started the podcast, to be honest. So probably within two years. So it's been 15 years after the oh, fact. Wow. Um, and the reason I didn't, I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, uh, a little, I don't know if it's going to be harsh or not. Um, I didn't think, I didn't think they, I didn't think they deserved to know in the fact that I didn't want them to be upset about what someone who they raised was thinking about doing that. Um, I I thought that they would think it was their fault. And one of the things that I've always struggled with over the years is the event that happened, um, happened because I was too stupid to keep my mouth shut in regards to um, how I reacted with, with my dad, who was a political figure at the time. And I reacted in a way to someone that I shouldn't have. I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to get into too much more detail. That's fine. Um, so I have always lived with the burden that my my dad especially and maybe my mom somehow thought that this was their fault. And that's something that I just – I would never be able to live with if they did think that. So and on top of that, piling on the fact that their son almost took his own life because of what had happened, um, I just never really wanted them to – to be aware of that. Now, part of the reason that that probably happened over the years is because of the relationship I was in at the time. Um, I just, I, I ended up being someone who kept to themselves a lot because I really didn't have the ability to, to outwardly express without ridicule or, or this or that. Um, I will say that that relationship ended as a result of what happened. Um, I will also say that it ended amicably. There was no hostility, you know, Grown-ups, you know, go live lives and and be happy, whatever. But uh, at the time, it was it was brutal to go through what I went through. And so, you know, people say, how in the world can you get that low? There's always help. There's always help. You know what, man? When you are that low, there is no help. Nobody, you don't think that anybody in the world is is going to want to help you. And it is that that level of despair 
nothing can pull it, it almost nothing can pull you out of it but deep space nine pulled me out of it what um i don't mean to go back to this but i, I do have a, a curiosity mm-hmm. what what did your parents say how did they react when you told them because obviously it's, it's like you said no parent wants to to know that that was a possibility in their child's life every parent wants to believe that they're going to outlive or their children are going to outlive them and there was a day in your life where that almost was not true mm-hmm. so uh, did what what was their reaction like? Did they, what did, if you want to tell me what they said? You can, but um, if not, then then no. Obviously, you don't have to. But I, I'm curious as to, knowing your parents. I'm curious about this. I don't think there was anything said, man. I think it was just a an unbelievably long embrace and a lot of tears, um, and a lot of um, and a lot of uh, love. I think is is the important thing. Um, let me. I'll get back to this point in just a second. But one of the things I also want to to talk about is after that happened, after, after the captive pursuit episode, cause I want to give kind of the full story in a, in a, in a three minute synopsis version, so to speak yeah, yeah. is this happened. It, it did not take place. I was able to stop myself, thankfully. And it, things were still bad. I mean, things were just bad for bad, bad for a long time. Um, I ended up moving back in with my folks. I had to find new work. Um, and as a result of that, I, I had I had debt that I had to pay because of, of of legal fees and 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 decisions and this that and the other thing. So I didn't really think that anything was going to happen with my life again. It was just I was just I just was miserable. Um, and then one day a friend called and said, "Hey, come down and fix my laptop. I got a friend coming down to visit, and and you guys can meet and and we'll have a good time." And I'm like, "Nah, I'm not really going to drive down to Rhode Island." And the next morning <laughs> I woke up and said, "Well, why not? I don't have anything else to do. I don't have a life." So I did, and that was the day that I met Sue. And um, I fell in love with her the day I met her, and I knew that I was going to marry her and spend the rest of my life with her. And so f- love at first sight does happen, people. But I will say this, in regards to everything, it took a long time for everything to get healed. Everything has gotten healed. Even with the individual that this happened with, we have met, we have talked, he has forgiven, we have become friends. Everything has resolved itself. Now, what I'm going to say is going to sound weird. And I have said this before. I said it to groups of people who I have. I actually spoke to a group of kids about this um, a long time ago about what had happened. What happened? What I what happened was my own fault. I will never let anyone else share the blame for it. I caused it. What happened as a result of that, and almost taking my own life, I have nobody to blame for but myself. No matter what other people may say about how other people were, I would go through. That hell, a hundred times worse every day if I knew that my wife was the end result. It's that simple. Anybody listening who is having a hard time or doesn't think that there's anybody to talk to or doesn't have a light at the end of the tunnel, that's what I call it, people. She was my light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't know it at the time. But she was. So there is always, always a reason to keep going. There are people out there that can talk to you. And you're going to be surprised and happy if you don't do what you think is the only way out. 
I, 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 there's nothing I can possibly add to that. Um, I, I do have a couple of other questions and then we can move on to, or, sure. or back into the episode if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, well, after this is not the kind of thing that you just sort of, you know, shake off. It, it takes time to get over. I mean, it takes, it takes a while to get into that, that sort of pit of despair, if you will. And I imagine it takes a while to climb out of it. Did you talk to anybody after that? Did you seek out any sort of professional guidance or, or therapy or anything like that? Or was it really just getting up and getting out of bed and, and putting your feet on the floor and just trying to get through the next day? That's all that it was. I never, uh, I never uh, looked to get assistance professionally, which is something that I probably should have done, um, but I never did. Um, and it was just having to get through it uh, every day. Now, uh, you said something uh, as you were asking the question about, um, and I, I don't remember how you how you paraphrase it exactly or how you said it, but I will say that it's been seventeen years, sixteen and a half years or so since everything happened. And there, and I will say this: as no matter how happy I am in life and how great things are, not a single, single day goes by that I don't think about what I did and the hurt that I caused to people that I never would have imagined I would have caused hurt to. It's something that I will always live with, and I will always feel guilt over. But being able to have several closure points over the years helps exponentially every time one of those points gets to gets to me. Um, so I think about it every day, every single day, man. Um, uh, it's something that I always, I, it's something that I think I have to do for myself. Uh, like I said, my parents raised me to do things the right way. They raised me with their best interests. And like a lot of people do, I'm not saying I'm, nobody's perfect. I'm certainly not. I decided to not listen to that. And I did something that I never would have done in a, a 999,999 times out of a million. But that one time I did, and it it was bad, and it, it cost it cost me, it cost a lot of people, um, and um, it's something that I will always live with. But I'm able to be a happy person and have a wonderful life because of the things that have happened since then. And you are one of those things. We happen to run into each other at a restaurant. Um, just by happenstance one evening when Sue and I were out to dinner and you were there with our good friend Craig and, and it picked up right where it left off from that point. It always does with us though. It does. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I had a question of mine and, and it's escaped me (laughs) because as you might, might imagine, this is kind of a, a a deep topic of it. You mentioned you think about this every day and you think about the things you carry guilt over. And I mean, there's got to be a part of you, Dan, that, that realizes that guilt can be mitigated or assuaged to some extent because um, that was then. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's um, you know, and I hate to relate it back to Star Trek, but so many things in, in our lives do relate that way. You think about an emissary, Cisco keeps asking, you know, why do you keep bringing me back here? And, and the prophets tell him, no, you, you exist here. Mm-hmm. You're living here. And do you ever think there will be a time when maybe you skip a day and that turns into a trend? Because clearly you've got nothing to be feel guilt over now. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, I don't have any guilt, anything to be feel guilty about now, but I have tremendous guilt about 
about what happened. And they say time heals all wounds. And that may be true. But for me, I don't think it's going to ever heal it 100%. Well, you know what? I got to take that back. I talked about it a little while ago. Um, I had a uh, the moment that we had in Vegas, which was that final thing. I guess I guess over course because you said that I do like to be detail oriented, which I'm not going to argue with about you, uh, with you, Bill. <laughs> and I guess over that is wise. Yeah, over time, I've actually thought in my head, what are the things that are going to finally able to let me put this to rest? And they've all been met now. So maybe maybe going forward sometime soon, I will be able to have that day where I don't think about it. Um, I don't know. I know that some days I will just like, for example, if I'm driving into work and it's just me or if I'm in the shower or if I'm uh, doing something and it's just me and I'm ironing, for example. You know how I iron all the time and, and I do it in bulk? Yeah. It'll, <laughs> it'll pop into my head. And it'll, it'll, that snowball will happen. And even though things are so great, I start thinking about the things and I start feeling miserable. It's that powerful. That emotion can really suck you in really quickly and make you feel awfully bad very quickly. And that has happened even, even not too long ago in times it's happened. And it's been 17 years. Um, it can be a very dangerous thing to get stuck in that um, abyss. Uh, even after so much time, um, but now I have uh, people in my life that I can that I can talk to and go to if I ever feel miserable about it. And um, you know, now that that final thing has occurred in Vegas, I, I yeah, what you said makes sense that maybe I will be able to start having days where I don't think about it, and that would be. That would be wonderful, but at the same time, man, I gotta wonder if I'll feel guilty about not being guilty about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, because I, I think there is some sort of a vicious circle to it. We'll talk about Terry Farrell in just a second, but you know, as uh, as obviously an interested party and, and your friend and and your brother and all those types of things, you know, I you've suffered for this long enough, Dan. You know, yeah, know. you've you've mentioned you, you've you've closed the book, so there's there's no need to reopen it. You know, you've you've given yourself the right, you've earned the right, Dan, to sort of let this go a little bit and not have it weigh on you because it's not that it causes you stress, but you just said, you know, you start to think about it, you feel miserable. Um, you've come so far since then. I mean, 47 year old, you would have so much to tell 30 year old you at that moment. At, you know, if we were talking about that sort of, uh, sort of event, but you know, I think that, you know, you've, you've come so far and done so many things and you're not that person that I think you've kind of earned this right. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I really appreciate that, man. It, it, it means a lot. I, I'm kind of stammering. Um, I totally hear what you say, but at the same time, that guilt thing comes screaming back when I hear something like that, that, um, I've earned the right to not feel that way. But at the same time, I feel that it's my I don't know what's the what's what's the show? Is it one of the uh, is it um, Scrooge where one of them is burdened to to always carry something with him? I feel that sometimes that that's that that's what I'm supposed to do. I it's it's kind of hard to put into words. No, I think I understand that on some level. I mean, it's it's certainly something you've never really considered before this, and it may take time to think about and process. And and I respect that, but you know, just sort of keep that in the back of your head. Um, you know. You, even even Scrooge took a day off. You know what I'm saying? 
<laughs> no, he really didn't. <laughs> he did at the end. <laughs> no, no. In all seriousness, man, I, I, I can't, I can't thank you enough for for saying stuff like that. It's um, as people can probably tell by the sound of my voice, it's it's something that even after so long can just really uh, bring back a lot of scary things. Um, but at the same time, I am honored to quote Worf to be able to tell you the story because I'm here to tell it. Um, and that's, that's something we're going to get into later with my thanks to Cole Meany, but, uh, it's, it's, it's scary to think that it could have been so easily the other way around. Um, so thank you for that, man. I really appreciate it. And I think it, 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 so many things have helped over time that I think what you just said is going to be something else that helps. Well, uh, if, if it does, then, then I, I'm grateful for that. Um, let's talk about the final chapter um, sure. that, that you referenced earlier in this book. And uh, at STLV, uh, just several weeks ago, you, um, or, or I should let me back up, as part of the What We Left Behind documentary for Deep Space Nine, you donated at a level that allowed you a meet and greet with the DS9 cast members or some of the DS9 cast members. Mm-hmm. And uh, I talked you into it. I, <laughs> it was your money, not mine. Uh, <laughs> but I, I thought at that point it was a moment you needed. I thought you needed that closure. And as part of that closure, you actually got to say hi to Terry Farrell and you got to tell her in the most briefest of terms, what Deep Space Nine meant to you. So how did that conversation go? It went it went really, really, uh, really well. Like you said, Bill, we talked about the the different levels of the Kickstarter and and I f- and we talked about it and I was like, you know what? I this I gotta do this. This is this is something I need to do. Um so this meet and greet, Terry finally showed up and as people were milling around, we were saying hi to other people. But Terry's one of those core people of Deep Space Nine. Um I really of course wish that uh, Colm would have been there, but um, he was not. Um, so when it came time for me to to say hi to Terry and, and thank her, I kind of pulled her closer to me and I said, do you mind if I tell you a brief story? And um, she said, sure. And and I told her about everything and how that I was, I was, I was at the point where I was about to pull the trigger and I was going to die and, and, and Deep Space Nine was on and Captive Pursuit was the episode. And I went through all of that. And as I'm telling her this, Tears are streaming down her face, and she starts sobbing as I'm telling her what ha- almost happened and how after this episode, she and every one of the cast members gave me that escape that I needed to survive and get through the toughest times, and she bear-hugged me after I said that to her. I was crying she was crying. I kind of think you were crying, although I couldn't really see it. And then I was stupid oh, enough yeah. to ask her if I could have a picture with her. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Hey, Terry, you have snot running down your face. Can we take a picture? <laughs> so it was, it was, I did not expect the reaction that I got from her. And it just gave more um, concrete belief to me of what that cast did to get me through it. Because whenever I needed to escape, I was able to through that show. And that show got me through it. And Captain Sisko said at the end of the seventh season that no matter where we go, 
a part of us will always remain on Deep Space Nine. And truer words were never spoken about me because I will always be there in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, Dan, I have to I have to thank you for for being willing to talk about this. Um, when I initially approached you with the idea of doing this episode, you didn't hesitate. Um, you wanted to talk about it, and you wanted to talk about this in context of the episode. So for that, I have to give you every amount of credit in the world. Um, I'm, I'm proud of you for, for being willing to, to share this part of your story because I think that there's a lot that people can take from it, whether people know you or not. Thanks. And I have to tell you that I, I couldn't be happier to know that you you were watching this particular episode at that particular time because it's, it's changed both of our lives. And, and honestly, for, for uh, to say for the better is it really doesn't do it justice. No, I appreciate that, man. I want to, I want to make one more point in regards to it. And it's something that you were talking about just now that made me think of it. It's not an easy thing to talk about. I, but at the same time, I don't mind talking about it. And here's why. If there's anybody listening or anybody who has listened to the story in the past or is listening to the podcast today who feels these feelings of of there's nothing left, if my words are able to make them pause for just a second and think about things and not do something drastic, then I succeeded in helping someone. And if it's just one person, that's enough for me. Helping just one person is is by by talking about this it makes it all worthwhile no matter how much i may feel the spotlight is on me or i'm embarrassed to talk about it or whatnot if i'm able to help at least one person then it's worth it and i hope that i am able to talk one person down from doing something that they shouldn't do because they're loved and there are people that are willing to sit and listen and help them get through whatever they may be going through i think the other thing that it impresses upon me is that everybody, every single human being on this planet is going through something. And people respond to things so differently. And that today could be the worst day in somebody's life mm-hmm. you know, that you encounter. And you may not even know it because of that, that, that mask they put on, for, for want of a better word, so that you know, so as not to draw attention to themselves. Yep. And it's just it's it's a constant reminder to just be kind. Right. You know? We um we talked about it at the beginning of the show. I didn't know about these things back then. It was so long ago. But I'm gonna stress them again. Uh, if there are people that need somebody to talk to, there are places. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is there twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred and sixty five days a year. One eight hundred two seven three eight two five five is their number. And you can also do a chat online, which is really cool. Of course, they didn't have that back then either uh, at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. These people are there to help. And uh, I would stress strongly, if you feel that you don't have anyone you can talk to, go reach out to these people because they will help you. Without a doubt. Dan, thank you so much for, for sharing your story. It, it, it means the world to me as somebody who's known you for so long. And uh, I'm glad you're here, buddy. Thanks, buddy. I'm glad to be here to tell it. So Dan, some final thoughts on uh, Captive Pursuit. I think maybe you and I can pick uh, 
two or three things that stand out about this episode and why we think it's so timeless and and why it has just such standing as great Star Trek on top of the other meanings it has for us. Absolutely. Can I say one thing, though, to get us back to our normal thing? Yeah. You're a jerk. Okay. We're done. Ready. Your your face. (laughs) That's excellent. So uh, why don't you go ahead and, uh, and start with yours? Yeah, um, one of the first things that has always stood out to me, we talked about it a little bit, but I will go into more detail here, is the makeup in this episode. Oh my God, it is just so amazing. You know, it's the fifth episode in, and I will say that season one did have some issues with makeup, and I'm referring specifically to Odo and Renee, especially at the beginning when you compare to how he evolved over the rest of the series. And I know that he's, you know, a shapeshifter and he's gotten better at shapeshifting, but sometimes that makeup in season one was not that great, but they came in with this episode, Michael Westmore. Oh my God. What he did with Tosk is just amazing. We talked about the magazine that um, he saw an alligator on, and that's what Tosk was based on. Um, The episode was actually nominated for an Emmy for makeup and Hands down, I think it should have won it. Um, so that's the first thing I think of with this episode. Okay. Um, I have to say, for me, the first thing I think of, honestly, is is the fact that this really, for me, was Deep Space Nine's you know, sort of flag-planting moment saying, damn it, this is Star Trek, and here's how Star Trek we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we didn't have to seek out new life forms as as O'Brien tells Tosk, you know, as part of their, their mission, they could come to us. And that departure was really kind of okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it was something we had to get used to as a viewing audience. And I think that this episode really kind of wiped that line away and said, see, this can be just as Star Trek as the other shows. And it's good. It is. It's very good. Um, very well put. And my second point kind of ties into that. And it's, you know, this episode really started showing how Deep Space Nine was going to be vastly different from TOS and and especially TNG, and it was okay to do so. Um, it was more, it was darker, and it was much more quote adult. And by that I mean simple things like we we briefly touched on it earlier. The very first scene of this episode, Quark is making sexual advances towards the Dabo girls because it's written in their contract. I mean, you would never have seen that in a script in Gene's world, ever. No, um, never. And, and, and to me, it showed that the writers and the decision makers for DS9 were, were going to make this their show. And to be frank, they had the balls to do it, and they were able to pull it off. Um, you know, the story's as pure Star Trek as you can get with the Tosk arc. But those little things like the Davo girls, to me, showed that the powers to be with DS9 were okay with with the more, quote-unquote, parental guidance-suggested aspects of the show. I can't find any fault in that statement. I agree with everything you just said. As well um, you should. My, as well <laughs> I should, mister. Um, my second point has to be Scott McDonald as Tosk. Oh. You know, he just, he totally slays this role. You know, even though we see him in Trek multiple times, you know, hereafter, I really think that this is my favorite part that he's played. And he created an alien that uh, really found a way to stand apart in a space station full of aliens. (laughs) Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, you mentioned earlier that he's been in a bunch of stuff. I thought he was just 
great as the Jem'Hadar who was not addicted to Ketracel White later on down the road in Hippocratic Oath. Uh, he just does a great job. But this one is head and shoulders above any of the work that he's done on Star Trek, in my opinion, as well. I uh, Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, he, he does some great character work, especially behind really heavy prosthetics. But even some of his other roles that haven't involved that have really been great. So I really think he's one of those actors that doesn't get enough credit, and I'm happy to give it to him today. Very nice. I like it. Um, my third point is giving credit to an actor, uh, and that's Mr. Colmini. Uh, and Colm, I hope you can hear this someday. Uh, you saved my life, sir. Uh, that's all I can say. Um, I want to shake his hand someday, Bill. I, I really do. And, and, and tell him what he did for me. He was just phenomenal in this episode, and he worked so well with Scott. Um, and to me, you know, Miles wasn't just a Trek character in this in this episode. He was he was a real person to me, and he fu- he showed a full spectrum of emotion. He was curious about Tosk. Um, he became friends. He showed revulsion uh, for what Tosk was bred for. He was angry at the hunters. Um, he showed compassion for how precious every life is. He showed desperation and breaking rules to free Tosk. And then, <laughs> to be honest, I think he was scared of what Cisco was going to do to him after the fact. But each one of those things was brilliantly portrayed by by Colm. And uh, that is that is the one takeaway that I will take from this episode forever is is that performance by that gentleman. I can think of no better way to wrap up our look at Captive Pursuit. Um, it's an episode that whose meaning has changed for me um, over the years as I've gotten to know the story behind this episode for you, Dan. And truly, I can never watch it the same way again, um, as, as I know, obviously, you can't. But right. um, it's had that effect on me now, too. And uh, just uh, I'm glad you're here, buddy. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. It's um, it's a very special episode, I, and I'm kind of glad. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of try to make a joke here as best I can. I'm glad at least the one that saved my life was a good episode and not a real crappy one, <laughs> because then I'd have to be, you know, talking about a real crap episode and nobody would really care. <laughs> <laughs> like the muse. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Skip it. Um, Dan, we have to. Uh, Send some thanks to our friends in five-year mission. They who are getting ready to wrap up year four. Hard to believe that it's almost uh, upon us as the year is drawing to a close. Hopefully we have some new 5YM tunes to, uh, to, 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 to listen to and to learn and listen to again and again and again. Um, then we want everyone to head off to fiveyearmission.net, download their albums, all of them. And then when you hear year four is available, go back and download that one uh, because they really are fantastic. They provide all the music you hear on Trek Geeks and we can't thank them enough for it. We can't thank them enough, but it's a little sad. You know, Bill, we never knew. Did you know that? That we never knew? Uh, never knew what? We never ever had any idea that Deanna Troy had a brother who was destined to grow up and be a successful drummer in an amazing Star Trek band. Uh, But alas, don't be murmuring. Alas, it wasn't meant to be, my good friend. For he died tragically at a very young age. And Luoxana hid it from Deanna. How could she do that? How could she? We didn't know that until now. You know, it's that that season seven stinker, Fark Page. Yes. 
Yes. I I have no words. <laughs> I saw that coming a mile away. It's I like know. a gardener you're, you're a smart man. You're not you're not just one of these others. You know, you're not a pack lid, usually. Usually. <laughs> uh, it was like a, a garden rake and I still couldn't help but step on it. And hear the patoing as it hit me straight in the face. Hashtag patoing. Um, hashtag patoing. Yeah, fiveyearmission.net, everybody. Despite Dan's uh, Farkism this week, please go download their albums. Dan, we also want to thank Aaron Harvey. He from Trek FM, Saturday Morning Trek, and also The Edge, their dedicated Star Trek Discovery podcast. Aaron is the creator of our Trek Geeks Delta and Man. Doesn't it look fabulous? Oh. It, uh, I, we, you and I each have one tattooed on us. It adorns almost every piece of clothing I wear these days. I'm sure much to my wife's chagrin and dismay, (laughs) but, um, we can't thank Aaron enough. We want everyone to check out his podcast. And if you happen to be on Twitter, you know, give him some love at geek filter. That's his handle there. Dan, next week you are headed off to the happiest place on earth, but that doesn't mean we're just going to sit around on our heels now, does it? No, it doesn't, Bill. We talked about this earlier, and and I'm kind of putting the gavel down. Um, Next week I'm going to be taking in some fun and relaxation over down in Disney World. Um, You know, I figured what better a time to subject you to yet another trip down Geek the Stump Lane. Yes, sir. Um, That's right. It's going to be a trivia twist around for our illustrious executive producer as he answers the trivia question in our special supplemental episode next week on an all-new Trek Geeks, a Star Trek podcast. I've got a bad feeling about this. Uh, Great. (laughs) Ooh, wrong genre. my bad. Wrong franchise. Wrong franchise. (laughs) Dan, for more great Star Trek discussion, we want everyone to check out the Tricorder Transmissions online at thetricordertransmissions.com. Seriously, they've got so many shows out there. They're going to have something for every Trek fan, we guarantee it. Please check them out. We're sure you're going to love their stuff. And of course, Dan, for all the news on all the Star Treks, please visit our wonderful friends at treknews.net. For now, this has been episode 114 of the Trek Geeks podcast. We do hope you all live long and prosper. I am Coconut O'Brien. Wait, you're, you're Coconut O'Brien? All right, just end the tape. You know it's not tape now, right? Oh, oh, sorry. This week's episode of Discovering Trek is brought to you exclusively by Fansets. Check out their brand new line of Star Trek Discovery pins, including Lieutenant Saru and Takuvma. Plus, brand new Discovery pins are coming soon. Discover a whole new universe of pin collectibles with Fansets online at fansets.com. New ships, new crews, new aliens. And hey, a brand new podcast from Trek Geeks to talk about it every week. Star Trek Discovery premieres soon, and we're here to talk about it. I'm Dan Davidson, your host, and we are Discovering Trek.
Hi, all, and uh, hey, welcome to this introduction of Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion presented by Fansets. Uh, this is our brand new podcast dedicated to the sixth live action Star Trek series, which is debuting on CBS and CBS All Access in the United States on September 24th and the rest of the planet on September 25th. Uh, So why do we call it a Star Trek Discovery Companion? Well, uh, this podcast will examine each week's episode of Discovery, and we're going to look at the story and characters, but also we're going to look to see what we might discover about humanity, and maybe even ourselves in the process. Uh, We want this to be the definitive look at Star Trek Discovery, and we can't wait to bring it to you. My name is Dan Davidson, and hey, I am so excited to be here, and joining me every week will be my illustrious co-host and good friend and brother, Bill Smith. Bill, we've, we're here. It's hard to believe we're here. Thanks so much, Dan. And uh, it seems like we've waited for this moment for so, so long. And it will be here in just a few short weeks. I, I can't believe it. It's, it's just around the corner. It seems like forever ago that we actually had the announcement. We had STLV with, with um, just a little bit of a teaser, and people were saying, oh, my gosh, is that what the ship's going to look like? And we go fast forward a year. Here we are. We're ready to go. We've got lots to talk about every week, and we've got lots of ways that people can get in touch with us to see or to say – what they think about every week's episode. So uh, let's open up those hailing frequencies, Bill, and tell everybody how they can get in touch with us. We can certainly do that, Dan. Of course, we want everyone to follow us on Twitter at Discovering Trek. And on Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com slash Discovering Trek. There you can join in on the discussion and even leave us comments, questions, or even suggestions. You can also send us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash trekgeeks. Please remember to tell us your name and where you're from. And also do remember that any comments you may leave us may be used in an upcoming episode of Discovering Trek. Dan. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from a lot of people about what they think every single week because there's a lot to go. Uh, There's a lot that's going to be happening over the course of the next 15 episodes. We have 15 episodes of Discovery. Uh, The newest Star Trek is about to hit the airwaves, and we are very, very excited. I can't wait. You know, it seems like forever ago since they sent out the initial release saying that, hey, there's going to be a new Star Trek series. And I think you and I went into to full-on fanboy geek mode at that point, and we haven't let up since. And, and I'm just, I'm excited to see what they've got for us. So, you know, everybody who's listening obviously has been waiting just as long as we have. Uh, we only have a, a couple of weeks left to go. Uh, but, you know, Bill, let's talk about Discovery itself for a few minutes. I mean, um, what is this going to be? What are we expecting uh, with this brand new series? You know, uh, we were in Vegas just a few weeks ago, and we had the uh, um, honor of sitting in the audience when some of the cast members came on stage to open the convention, pretty much, and also talk about their experiences during the first few months of, of shooting. And it was it was really amazing to hear some of the things that those cast members had to say. Without a doubt. I think one of the things that stuck with me immediately was the Klingon presence. You know, at San Diego Comic-Con, we saw a lot of the Starfleet crew. And um, at STLV, we saw a couple of, you know, our our main Klingons. And it's impressed upon me that that the Klingons are going to be back and, and bigger than ever. We know that this takes place during some sort of war between the Federation and the Klingons. Exactly what's involved or in the scope of that war we don't really know yet, but that's going to reveal itself in Discovery Season 1. 
plus you know some eagle-eyed people looking through to the discovery exhibit at both san diego comic-con and star trek las vegas may have gotten some clues as to what this series is about and I keep seeing a sarcophagus ship being referenced, Dan, and I got to think that that's going to be one of the elemental plot points of the entire season. Yeah, I think so as well. And some of the trailers, which we'll get to in just a minute, there's been some really cool um, imagery of a, looks like a body being raised up and the Klingons doing the Klingon death howl uh, that we became familiar with during the next generation. So definitely some kind of death ritual is going on. Um, Is it an ancient sarcophagus ship? Um, What's the deal with it? What's the deal with the uniforms and the look of the Klingons? And the thing that I'm very... um, impressed and interested in is everyone who was on stage, whether it was cast members or writers, seemed to indicate that they would be explaining all of this to us, which I think is good because when everything started coming out uh, several months ago, there were a lot of people online that were saying, oh, here we go, another look for the Klingons, and and we're never going to know what this is all about. I think that they're going to put that to rest, and I think they're going to do so fairly quickly in the series based on what we heard out in Las Vegas. Well, you know, I think one of the things that Star Trek has always displayed to us was that, you know, the aliens we encounter are mostly monocultures. You know, they're, they're alien species look one way. And, you know, that's not the way we look on Earth. You know, our various, you know, nationalities have, have different characteristics about them, and it lends to the diversity of, of the human race. And I think that what we're going to see in Discovery is some diversity within the Klingons. We know now that there are various houses of the Klingons and like a set number of them and that they may look different between the various houses. And I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about. We're not just going to, you know, turn the Klingons on their ear a little bit, but we're going to create some really in-depth lore that I don't think the other series really managed to accomplish during their runs. And I think that's one of the most exciting things. I think so too. One of the things I liked most about that discussion is Mary Chifo was on stage and she was gracious and she is so excited to be part of the Star Trek community now. She actually mentioned to us in uh, this panel that we sat in that she's of two houses. So that should be kind of interesting to uh, get the lowdown on that, yo, when it comes out uh, in a couple of weeks. I agree. And I think one of the other big takeaways from that panel was that uh, Kenneth Mitchell, who plays Cole, also happens to be of the House of Core. And you and I both perked up when we heard that because we're both big, you know, Core fans. And we can't wait to see how that works itself out and how that comes to light. It was really great uh, when we heard that because we were both wondering if he was supposed to say that or if that was kind of a secret that he kind of just let slip. Um, Is it the core? Well, I guess we'll find out. One of the things I found also very interesting was they showed a picture for the first time of Cole And some very, uh, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, eagle-eyed people noticed that in that picture, he's actually wearing a Starfleet Delta. I was really stunned by that. I can't wait to find out the reasoning why, um, or if that's really what it is, honestly. I mean, maybe he took it as a spoil of war, for all we know. We've uh, we've certainly seen people do that. Some of the Cardassians took the Ketracel white tubes from the Gem Hadar back on Deep Space Nine, while some of the um, Klingons took Cardassian neck bones and made necklaces out of them. So uh, we'll, I guess we'll find out. But um, you know, we we've been talking about what we saw in Vegas, but uh, since Vegas, well, actually before Vegas, during Vegas, and after Vegas, we have been getting some just downright amazing glimpses of this show in the form of long trailers and 10 second clips 
uh, that uh, they have been putting out, and they are nothing short of amazing. You know, I think back to you know, 30 years ago and 25 years ago and, and 20 years ago or so when, when the various other series premiered, uh, or even, you know, like uh, 15, 17 years ago when, when Enterprise came out. And although we got previews, we got nothing like the sort of borderline theatrical trailer that we got for Discovery. And I think it's because the methods of storytelling have changed significantly on television. And you can thank shows like Game of Thrones and Breaking Bad and, and even some of the HBO series like Oz, you know, from, from 15 or 16 years ago, you know, the, the style of storytelling has changed so much that it's kind of, it's kind of made a a marketing campaign change for a television series too. And what we're getting is epic. What we're getting is, is emotional. And what we're getting is just, it's, it's incredible stuff that really sort of whets the appetite for the viewer. And, with every release, I don't know about you, but I get more and more amped to see episode one. I'm right there with you. And, and you said it perfectly. It's wetting the appetite because a, a lot of these splash trailers, as I've been calling them, that have come out over the last few weeks, they're maybe 10 seconds in length, maybe 15. They're very short and they do very quick splashes of an image. And it, it just changes over and over again. It's They've done it with some of the equipment. They've done it with the uniforms. The level of detail in the production, I've said it before over on Trek Geeks, it's amazing how they've done and put so much work into just these little bits of information that they're throwing at us. The special effects, the music, the lighting, everything is is cinematic quality, like you said a second ago. And if this is any indication at all, of what we can expect when episode one hits on September 24th here in the United States, we are going to be in for a treat and one hell of a roller coaster ride for the next 15 weeks. Well, you know, you think about it, the purpose of a trailer is to do what? It's to sell your product. And they are doing a great job selling this product to non Star Trek fans. And that's really the key here. I mean, although we love to see the trailers and we love to see the previews as fans, they're not just looking to grab us. They're looking to grab anybody who watches television. And I think that they're doing that successfully. And I think the campaign they've strung together is is really exciting. And I, I can't wait to see how many people come into the tent through Discovery because that's always the interesting thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. One, of, one thing our good friend uh, Heather always says is that one of these treks is always someone's first trek. And this episode or this series is going to be no different. There's going to be a lot of people coming into the family because of Discovery. And what they've given us so far before the show even airs, I think, is a testament to what we can expect. Now, you mentioned it just a second ago. They're doing what they need to do to bring in these new people. So let's talk about that for just a second. One of the things I've noticed, especially this week, is... There's been a lot of pictures on social media about billboards and entire uh, rooftops of these huge buildings with advertisements for Discovery. That's something that I did not expect to happen for, for Discovery, to be honest, being a streaming service on CBS All Access. But they are, they're, they're pulling out all the stops, and some of these billboards are really pretty cool. Yeah, there are some that are the entire sides of buildings. Mm. You know, in Los Angeles, we saw pictures from uh, from both Ken Mitchell's and Mary Chifo's Twitter accounts. You know, they're, they're out and about, and hey, there's a building with Discovery on the side. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's pretty amazing stuff. It it shows the investment by the network, and it shows that you know that they want this to succeed. I think one of the most 
encouraging things about this marketing campaign has been how they've been saturating social media, the special releases of smaller ads they've been doing at, uh, at 1031 or 1227 based on the reg- registry numbers of, of the starships involved. You know, just really small things. And then you get the trailers, which I guess are showing in movie theaters in some towns, you know, as part of the pre-show stuff, they're really going after as wide an audience as they can. And this being the first Star Trek series, you know, in the, in the social media era, I think they're doing a lot of the right things right, uh, especially the cast. I mean, the cast is all over social media. Oh, it's, it's really amazing. That's what I was going to bring up is, is Enterprise was about 12 years ago, I think. And none of this was around. Twitter was, I don't even know if it was around. If so, it was just in its infancy and, and Facebook and all the other aspects of social media. The cast has really dove into social media to help get the word out. And we got to give special props um, as we have done in the past, to Anthony Rapp. His social media Twitter feed in regards to Discovery is some of the best reading I see anywhere on a daily basis. He really knows how to do this. He's awesome at it, as is the entire cast. But uh, he's really had some special tweets over the past few weeks and, and couple of months. He really has. You know, we talk about a lot on Trek Geeks about the spirit of Star Trek and, you know, how people get it at times. And Anthony Rapp is really one of those people who truly understands what Star Trek is. I mean, yeah, it's a TV show. It's something we all enjoy. But, you know, as we all know, there's an underlying message there. And I think it's one that that Anthony has embraced and and looked to to put forth himself. You know, it says a lot about him. You know, I look at some of the other cast members like like uh, Chris Obi, who plays Takuvma, and, and Mary Chifo, who plays Laurel, and even Ken Mitchell, who plays uh, Cole, all the Klingons. Mm-hmm. They've been incredibly active on social media. So is Jason Isaacs. You know, it seems like they're all doing their part in an unprompted way to help make this a success. You know, because there's a lot of tweets that, you know, you know, just can't be, you know, run through CBS marketing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> You know, but it's 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 heartwarming to see that you know Star Trek can can blanket social media just like every other show and be successful. I, I think it's pretty awesome. It's always awesome when you see something of Star Trek is actually trending on Twitter. That really warms my heart, and uh, I hope it happens a lot more. Um, so, so we've talked about all these things. It's it's going to be hitting in in just a, a few weeks' time as we record uh, episode zero here. You know. So we're bringing this companion show on, and this is going to be about what we hope to discover with Star Trek Discovery. Um, we're going to talk about what happened on the episode. We're going to talk about what we think is going to happen the following week. And we're going to talk about our own humanity and what we notice in this episode that teaches us about humanity. What are your hopes for this show, Bill? Well... I'd have to say that in Discovery, you know, I, I hope for you know the very heart of Star Trek. I think back to some of the original series episodes and some of the best episodes of of the subsequent series, you know, like TNG or DS9 or or even Voyager and Enterprise. And there are episodes that, you know, you you know just by looking at them or watching them that, you know, yep, this is Star Trek. It's great Star Trek. And what I hope from the series, since it is a different type of storytelling, is that we get a consistent season-long arc that helps us realize that Star Trek is alive and well in this, you know, second 50 years that it's in. Um, I think that that's important. I think that 
you know, it's it's one thing to have a you know a pew pew sci fi shoot 'em up, but it's another thing to have something that tells an actual story about us as humans in this day and age, you know, with the future as the setting. And I think that's really what I hope for the most. That's what I want to discover about this series. I want to find the humanity in it. I want to find the heart in it. And I want to find the hope because I think that that's something that we've been missing a lot in today's day and age. And it's one of the things that Star Trek has always spoken to in its core was hope. You, um, you took, you took the words right out of my mouth, partner, because that was what I was going to say. I, I am looking for hope in the show. Um, one of the things that Star Trek has always done has taken the events of the day and made an episode out of it and done it with a Star Trek twist. And it always seems to work. We can go all the way back uh, to the original series with, with how they were able to tackle issues um, all the way up through Enterprise. And there are perfect examples of, of times that are tough and they bring it in and they make it a Star Trek episode. And that's what I'm hoping for because what they're able to do with that episode is turn it into hope because it's in the future and how they are going to deal with things. That's what I'm looking for with Discovery. And I want to discover things about myself and about our fellow man every week as we watch the show and dissect it uh, from a week-to-week basis. One of the things I had said earlier is that, you know, we've got a lot to talk about over the next 15 weeks, but we actually have to let people know that they're going to be splitting the season in half. They're going to have the first half of the uh, arc um, right away, starting on September 24th and then on a weekly basis. And they're going to take a little bit of a break and they're going to come back with the final uh, half of the arc, I believe, in January, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, we've got a lot of, uh, of things to talk about in, uh, in quite a stretch of time coming up. Well, you know, the other thing I hope about this series has to do with you and that you're going to the premiere in Los Angeles. And I hope that you don't say a word about what happens in that first episode, because I'm not going to see it for five days after that. You let the cat <laughs> right out of the bag, friend. Yes, I'm very, very excited. I will be flying out to L.A. It's going to be a long uh, 24 to 48 hours because I'm flying out the morning of the premiere going to the premiere and then coming back the next morning to the East coast. But uh, you know what? It is going to be worth it because it is going to be very, very uh, exciting. I'm very honored and, and humbled to be able to join all the people out there for this premiere. And don't worry, I won't say a word to you, man. I will let you wait until the 24th. That's, that's really the best thing you could do in this case, (laughs) (laughs) but I'll be texting you as things happen saying, I knew that. I knew that. (laughs) You know, um, one of the things I do want to talk about, Bill, now that we've talked about what we're going to be doing on the show and uh, what we can expect with Discovering Trek is talk about our good friends over at Fansets. You know, um, we can't thank them enough. They are such great friends of ours, and they are our exclusive sponsor of Discovering Trek. We are so happy to be... um, having them sponsor the show on a weekly basis. We've got some great things that we're going to be doing with them over the course of these 15 weeks. They are an incredible group of people. They have an amazing product. Just go check them out at fansets.com and see all the different things that they have available. And I know that you've gotten quite a few pins over the course of the last few months also, man. You know, we were at Star Trek Las Vegas. I went all in on all of the Discovery pins they had available. You know, they had uh, Captain Georgiou. They had Lieutenant Saru. They had Takuvma. They had um, the 
the Discovery logo pin, and they had the USS Shenzhou right there on site. And those are all in the wall in my cubicle at work. And I look at them every day, and I'm like, oh, Discovery's coming soon. The pins, as all as with all of their other stuff, are simply just amazing. The quality is incredible. Um, the artwork is fantastic. And they're going to be bringing more and more Discovery pins as the season progresses, which is even more exciting. So they're going all in on it too. And they're going to have some special stuff just for discovering Trek listeners. I hear Dan. I think that's pretty awesome. And we can't wait to share with you exactly what we are going to have uh, for listeners of the show. Um, it's going to be an interesting ride and we are going to be riding with a great group of people, Lou and John and everybody associated with fan sets. Um, we're looking forward to it. Their product, like you just said, is amazing. And it's not just Star Trek. They've got all kinds of stuff that they that they have. Whatever genre you like, chances are that they have it. They've got Marvel and DC, and and uh, I've seen Alien pins and Harry Potter pins, and yes, even Firefly pins. So um, check them out. We love them. They're fansets on Twitter and Facebook, and of course, fansets.com is their website, and uh, they're a great group of people. We truly can't thank them enough for partnering with us and discovering Trek all season long. And I can't wait to see what they have for all of us as part of Discovering Trek. It's going to be pretty exciting. Can't wait. Well, you know, another thing that's kind of cool, Bill, is that um, we're going to be able to watch episode one of Discovering Trek on CBS television on September 24th here in the United States. And then immediately after episode one completes, episode two is going to be available on CBS All Access. And every episode after that will also be on CBS All Access. And um, if you're not a subscriber to CBS All Access, it is very easy to sign up. And we have a way that you can actually do it in a very simple couple of clicks. Isn't that right? That's exactly right, Dan. So we are an affiliate partner of CBS All Access. So that means if you subscribe to All Access through us, you help support the podcast. It's that simple. We've set up a special URL that's easy to remember so that you can go sign up for CBS All Access and be able to watch Discovering Trek. All you have to do is open up your browser and go to discovery.trekgeeks.com and we'll automatically get credit for your sign up and you can help support both Trek Geeks and Discovering Trek in the process. It's pretty exciting. That's it's how I intend to sign up for all access. <laughs> and we hope everyone does too. And we, we certainly thank anyone that, that uses that link to start their subscription, Dan. Sounds great. Well, you know what, man? Uh, I think that that about is going to do it for what we wanted to do here in Episode Zero. We're, we are thrilled to be doing this. We're thrilled to be bringing it to all our listeners. Episode One is coming up in just a couple of weeks, um, and we will be right there to bring it all to you. But before we go, Bill, I think there are a couple of ways, again, that uh, people can get in touch with us by social media. Isn't that correct? That's true. If you want to reach out to me directly, you can find me on Twitter at TrekGeekBill. And I'm also the same handle on Instagram. Uh, feel free to hit me up there. Of course, you can always head out to uh, the Camp Kittimer group on Facebook, which is the official Trek Geeks group. Uh, Dan and I both always seem to be hiding there. And uh, that's uh, Facebook.com slash groups slash Camp Kittimer. Excellent. And uh, for those of you that might want to reach out to me individually, I am on Twitter at TrekGeekDan. It's very similar to Bill's, except mine is with Dan, of course. And uh, yeah, you also can check us out on Facebook. We have our Discovering Trek page there as well. And uh, we hope that you will uh, come often and come early and also join us over in Camp Kittimer, like Bill uh, mentioned. It's a lot of fun over there. We look forward to a fun-filled year of Season 1 Star Trek Discovery. We can't wait. 
Music for Discovering Trek is provided by Five Year Mission. They're writing one song for each episode of the original Star Trek. Download their music at fiveyearmission.net. Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, is a production of Trek Geeks. Executive producer Dan Davidson. For even more Star Trek discussion, check out the Trek Geeks podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and trekgeeks.com.